Welcome to McGonigal's Chronicles, making Montana connections. I'm Tim McGonigal. A good way to describe Bob Quinn might be agricultural pioneer. The Big Sandy farmer has been on the leading edge of agricultural innovation. From developing Montana's first wind farm near Judith Gap, to being the brains behind the tasty crackling Kamut snacks you find in the grocery store. Quinn has spent much of his life working the same land his grandfather did starting back in 1920. He's been an organic farmer for more than 30 years and believes from a financial and health standpoint the practice is the future of farming. What was once laughed at is slowly gaining traction. Quinn's life is detailed in a book called Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs and Healthy Food which he co-wrote with Liz Carlisle. Here's more with Big Sandy's Bob Quinn. Welcome to Bob Quinn. Bob, uh, you're a businessman, an author, but uh, first and foremost, you're a farmer and an organic farmer at that. Uh, so, Bob, tell us, uh, from, from your interpretation, what exactly is organic farming and uh, why do you think it's uh, the way to go? Well, um, I've been an organic farmer for over 30 years now. Um, I think it's the future. It's the only future that really makes sense. I've seen... Um, half my neighbors in the last 50 years go out of business trying to um, play the um, industrial um, ag game where they pay more for inputs and sell it for less on the um, commodity market. So I don't do either of those things. I'm trying to raise all my own inputs and um, nourish my soil so the soil can nourish the plants and sell uh, my what I grow to um, specialty markets with higher value. All right. Well, Bob, I want to go back in time just a, a little bit uh, to your early days uh, up there in uh, Big Sandy, uh, which is which is where you you grew up on the on the farm there in Big Sandy, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, talk about uh, talk about growing up and uh, you know your family and uh, their farming uh, venture and how how you got into it. Well, my grandfather started the farm that we live on in 1920, so this is the farm where my father was raised, and and after World War II. Um, he and my mother and I moved back to the farm here in 1948, and um, this is where I was raised. My sister and I were raised here, and then I had the fortune to return to the farm in 78 and raise my kids here. Um, my dad was always um, looking for new and innovative ways to do better by the farm and have the farm do better, <clears throat> and he was one of the first to introduce um, uh, chemical agriculture to our farm in the early 1950s. And um, uh, it was uh, uh, like a godsend to have a spray to control weeds. Um, people love that. Um, fertilization wasn't quite as easily or readily accepted, but my dad did lots of experiments and, and it wasn't long before he con was convinced that um, buying fertilizers also was a beneficial uh, to, the, um, um, to the farm. And that's what he started doing. Um, he was always looking for new and inventive ways. And when I came back to the farm, I kind of continued in that tradition. And my innovation took me toward um, organic and, um, and focusing on soil building and um, growing our own inputs, like uh, legumes, like using peas and sweet clover and alfalfa to, to grow our nitrogen, for example, and using rotations to eliminate the need for um, uh, herbicides and insecticides. Okay, Bob, your, uh, part of your college education included uh, time at UC Davis uh, in California. And uh, I guess a lot of us in Montana, we may not think of that uh, as far as uh, agricultural uh, university, but uh, that's, 
if I'm not mistaken, one of the tops in, in the country, if not the world, right? It is. That's true. Um, UC Davis is a world-renowned agricultural ag school. Um, it's certainly in the top 10 of the country. And I did my um, undergraduate work at Montana State. And my major professor in my master's program there at Montana State was a graduate of UC Davis and encouraged me to go there for a, a PhD program in plant biochemistry. And that's what I pursued. Okay. Uh, you, you then came back to Montana. What, uh, tell me what drew you back to, to the Treasure State and to Big Sandy. Well, I think family as much as anything. Um, I didn't want to raise my kids in California. Um, <clears throat> my neighbor said, well, look around you and, um, and look around L.A. And this is exactly how L.A., um, Northern California, is exactly how L.A. looked 20 years previous to that. And in 20 years from now, um, Northern California is going to look like L.A. looks now. And I said, oh, man, that's not where I want to be. And so we came back to the farm. And my wife was also from Montana, so it was an easy move back to be close to the family. And raising the kids in the farm was also a joy and something that we um, enjoyed and looked forward to. And is it still a family farming operation? Your kids still work on the farm? or? Uh, well, actually, I don't know. We don't have any uh, of our kids on the farm at this point. I don't know if we're going to skip a generation. We've got a lot <laughs> of grandkids, and some have expressed some interest in that. And if I can hold out to one of them to show up, maybe they would uh, take over. But four years ago, I rented out my whole place to um, a couple of the uh, folks that had been helping me for the last five or six years. And they're continuing to farm organically and do a great job. And, and so I'm thankful for that. So I've downsized from 4,000 to four acres. And on that four acres now, I'm trying to raise all my own food. And it's, I'll tell you the truth, Tim, it's taking me about as much time to farm four acres with a hoe as I did 4,000 with a big tractor. So <laughs> I haven't really saved much time, but I'm still having a lot of fun. Yeah, so it's uh, uh, quality, not necessarily quantity, I guess you could say. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a lot of fun trying to grow everything I eat and eat everything I grow. So that's that's what I'm trying to do now. Yeah. Uh, Big Sandy, though, that, that's a town that, uh, I mean, ironically, it's, it's you know, made for some some famous Montanans. Uh, yourself, yeah. uh, Senator John Tester, uh, another yes. guy that we had on the program, uh, Jeff Ament from uh, Pearl Jam. Uh, yeah. Just a, just a, His dad was my barber all the yeah. time I was growing up. So. <laughs> yeah. So it's a great the community. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a great town. What is it about uh, Big Sandy? It's 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 full of. I mean, it's it has survived some some lean times, right? Well, yes, and not without hardship. I mean, when I was in school, it was nearly a thousand, and now it's down to six hundred. So, we've lost a, a lot of uh, businesses, and a lot of good families have um, have gone away. But we still have a core that really is uh, a lot of tenacity and 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 spirit, and they really want to. Um, they pull together and make the town go. So yeah. I'm thankful for that. All right. Well, in reading in your book, uh, Grain by Grain, um, you talk about ancient grains. And I believe there's a story. How did you first find out about these? You were in high school, correct? Well, that's, yes, I was um, probably a sophomore or so going into my sophomore year in high school. And I was at the county fair in Fort Benton. And this old fellow, he's probably younger than I am now, but he looked old to me. And uh he kind of waved me over and he said, hey, Sonny, he said, uh, would you like some of King Tut's wheat? And I said, sure. I went over and he poured this giant size kernels of wheat in my hand. I wear it in my hat. Now you can see I've got a few uh, uh, stalks there I keep close to me all the time. 
And um, he said, uh, I, well, he, he, the story went that the grain came from Egypt and actually from a tomb in Egypt um, uh, that it had been given to a serviceman from our county, from, from Fort Benton area. After World War II, he was stationed in Portugal as um, in the Air Force. Um, his name was um, Deadman, and uh, he sent this grain home that a friend of his showed him in a bar one night and claimed he took it out of a tomb and furloughed to Egypt. And he sent, he gave a few um, kernels to this Deadman fellow, and he sent it home to his dad, and he grew it, and um, he kept growing it. And after oh, five or six years, he had, a, oh, I guess, 500 bushel or so, and they they just passed it out as a novelty. They didn't really have a market for it. So it was just kind of a, a fun thing to grow and a fun story to tell. And that's what I, that was my first introduction to it. Okay. Uh, ancient grains, as opposed to the grains that uh, many of us are accustomed to here in the, in the U.S., what, uh, what's different about it? Well, this is a land race. Uh, most ancient grains are, is not really a good definition for them, but I consider an ancient grain if it came from an ancient civilization, and this certainly did. It was supposed to be from Mesopotamia. When I went to Egypt, I... I didn't find it in the tombs like they said it was there. It probably came out of the back streets of the Cairo market. Um, but I did find it growing in some of the um, upper Nile areas uh, in small patches where people use it for their own uh, food because they like the flavor and taste of it. But it wasn't available in the marketplace. It had a low yield um, <clears throat> and, and uh, probably lost favorite because of that. But when I went to... Um, uh, what I saw in the museum was einkorn, another ancient grain, but I didn't see any of this giant wheat that was a very close relative to Durham, actually. But I, when I went to Turkey, the people in Turkey, we were doing some experiments there, growing this grain in Turkey, and they said, oh, well, we know this grain. We call it camel's tooth, or we call it the prophet's wheat. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, why do you call it the prophet's wheat? Does it have something to do with Muhammad? Because, you know, Turkey's a pretty Muslim country. I didn't want to get on the wrong side of that discussion. And... Um, they said, oh, no, 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 not, not that prophet. He said, you know, the one with the boat. I said, the boat? I said, do you mean Noah? He said, oh, yes, this is the great Noah brought with him on the ark. And I said, wow, <laughs> that's a lot better story than my old tomb story. So that was, uh, you can take anybody, any legend you like, Tim, and, uh, <laughs> and run with it. But um, I have friends in Armenia, and Armenia is right on the other side of uh, Mount Ararat and next to Turkey. And um, they have the same legend. So you know what the good book says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall all things be established. And I said, well, that's good enough for me. So anyway, that's the story we're going with now. All right. And uh, some of these ancient grains, uh, I understand they're overall more healthy uh, for people. Well, you know, um, that, yeah, it's hard to say okay. without doing some research and, and really comparing uh, apples to apples. And a lot of these ancient grains are not pure lines the way we have now with, with most of the modern wheat that has been bred for certain purposes. Um, they're land races, and land races are consistent of closely related varieties, but gathered in nature by early farmers who were selecting for oh, probably taste and um, flavors as well as uh, yields. Um, and interesting enough, from the research that we have done, the better a food tastes, uh, more than likely, the better it is for you and the more healthy it is for you. The tastes and the aromas from foods are coming from secondary plant metabolites, which are many cases polyphenols and other uh, secondary um, uh, compounds from plants that really are very strong antioxidants. They reduce inflammation and they are very healthy for you. 
And what we've done in focusing on just uh, big bread volumes and big yields, uh, we've bred out some of those kinds of um, aspects from our modern wheat. And so in that respect, it's not quite the same. And you know that 20% of the population, well, up to 20, 12, between 12 and 20 at least, of uh, the population of America can no longer eat wheat, uh, modern wheat, without having some kind of a problem, um, the Jesse problem or some kind of discomfort. And most of those, like 85 or 90% of those, can eat these ancient grains like the Kamut brand uh, ancient wheat without any problem at all. And some of them um, can um, testify that they actually feel better um, eating them. And so we've done a lot of research comparing modern wheat and ancient wheat. We published 35 peer-reviewed journal articles. Um, and most of them, the recent ones have been clinical trials comparing people with different chronic diseases such as heart disease, um, diabetes, irritable bowel syndrome, non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome, um, even fibromyalgia. And we've, you know, the results have all been the same, that the ancient grains uh, produce a very strong um, increase in anti-inflammatory um, effects on the body and uh, also anti-inflammatory effects. It produced uh, it lowered cholesterol, it increased um, uh, magnesium and zinc and calcium in the blood. Um, for diabetics, uh, sh blood sugars were reduced, insulin resistance was reduced. So there was just a remarkable um, difference we could see in these controlled experiments with people who uh, had chronic il uh, illnesses. So that was really something to behold. Yeah, so it sounds like uh, there's uh, maybe cheaper grains being produced uh, here in the United States and producing more food that uh, in the short term may feel satisfying, but uh, in the long term, there could be some health uh, issues there. So you got the price of grain on one side and the price of your health on the other side. Oh, yeah. People, people have to people, weigh that. You know, the, the government had, a, had two big goals after World War II. One was uh, to be sure that we never ran out of food, that we had abundant food supply, and the other one was that it was cheap. And, and there's nothing matter with those goals, and they achieved them. But the way they went about it um, was to industrialize agriculture and change the, the nature of our food so that it was um, high-yielding and um, abundant and therefore cheap. And they didn't look at all about the nutritional aspect of it. And now we have um, food that is really deficient in a lot of nutrients that it used to have. Um, but the whole industrialization of agriculture and food has brought with it an enormous price. So there's a very high price of cheap food. And it doesn't, you don't pay it at the checkout counter. You pay it, as you mentioned, later on if you're, when you're sick, when you have chronic disease. That's where you pay it, the big bill. Uh, farmers who go broke, um, they pay that. They're, the, the loss to the neighborhoods, the decline of fall of rural communities, they pay it. Um, we have great pollutions from the chemicals we're using on our, on our lands. We have Roundup in our rain now. Glyphosate is falling out of the sky in the, in the rain on our land because of the tons and tons that are spread indiscriminately all over North America. We have dead zones in the, in the Gulf of Mexico that are big as New Jersey. You know, we have wells in, in Iowa so full of nitrates that children are not allowed to drink from them. And you just wonder how bad does it have to get before we really wonder if this industrial egg, um, what, um, uh, we're, 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 a merry-go-round we're on mm -hmm. is really worth it. Um, 
can we afford it? And that's, I think that's a very big question. That's why I'm saying that it's not the future. That's, the wheels are coming off that bus all over the place. We have resistant weeds to chemicals. We have all these pollutions I tell you about. We have health problems that the, the country will not be able to afford to pay for unless we go to the root causes, and that's um, mostly to dealing with our diet and the food that we eat. Okay. Well, Bob, uh, you wrote a book, I should say co-wrote a book, uh, called Grain by Grain, a Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. And uh, you co-wrote that with a woman by the name of Liz Carlisle. And uh, it's interesting uh, listening to the story, as I've heard you tell it uh, on, on different uh, podcasts or interviews. Uh, t tell us about how, how this book came to be. Well, I, uh, you know, it's a little hard to tell what you've done in 30 years in a soundbite or even in a couple paragraphs or a, even in a podcast like we're doing now <laughs> with a, and doing justice to the, the themes and how you came to these um, conclusions because a lot of people are having a lot of opinions and they're not afraid to share them. But you want to know well, why people think that way and why, why do they come to that conclusion? And I thought the best way for me to explain um, the way I've um, come to the conclusions I've come to is by telling the story of my life and how I've kind of gone from one um, episode to another and really come up with these uh, ideas in the first place. And so I decided I wanted to write a book. A friend of mine encouraged me to do so. I didn't really think about it until I was doing some lectures for a college in Alberta. And my friend up there said, well, why don't you just put this in a book and write a book about this? And uh, I started thinking about that. And so I spent Oh, five or six years uh, putting together ideas and I wrote half a book and I took it to one of my favorite publishers and they turned me down flat and um, so I kind of put it on the shelf I said it was too commercial <laughs> and um, so then I was a little discouraged and I ran into Liz at a um, uh, field day she got my pickup she and her husband and and I knew her from her work on the Lentil Underground I wasn't featured in that book but I kind of a byline and she'd been to our farm and and so I knew her, and, and I really appreciate what she had done. I thought she'd done a, a terrific job with it. And I said, well, Liz, I'm not really looking for a ghostwriter, but I'm looking for a co-author that I can work together with to um, write a book <clears throat> about um, my conversion to organic agriculture, about the introduction to um, the marketplace of a modern uh, or an ancient wheat, about the revitalization of, of small-town America. And she said, well, let me think about that. And so she called back a couple of days. She said, well, I'm ready to go. I said, I've thought about it. Let's do it. So we did it. And, and she did. To tell you the truth, Tim, she was able to do in five months what I couldn't do in five years. <laughs> so that's the, the difference where talent really comes in. And uh, instead of one uh, turned down by a publisher, we had five really good offers from five different publishers. And three were spectacular offers. And we went with Island Press in Washington, D.C., and they published that book in uh, March of 19, uh, 2019, and then Liz and I went on a, well, I went on a whole year of book tour, and she went on with me for about six months, and then she had to go back to school, and she teaches at UC Santa Barbara, so she had to go back to work, but it was a great experience, and I'm really glad I did. I'm not looking to change careers at this point. However, I'm <laughs> ready to retire and go into some other interests, but um, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it and appreciate your um, kind words about it. Yeah, well, uh, well, maybe have to talk to Liz on this program sometime too, because uh, she has, oh, yeah. sounds she'd like she's a got a great story. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, and ironically, she uh, was a, a staffer at one time for Senator John Tester, and I think in the uh, prologue yes. of the book, she talks about how uh, working for a Democratic senator, she was maybe kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, but uh, you are were considered a, and maybe still are a, a conservative. So she, uh, but you guys didn't let politics get in the way at all. Um, this is not a political <laughs> I think issue. There's so much more that unites us than what divides us. Even right. now, where we have divisions everywhere, uh, for the future of this country, that that's what we should focus on. We should focus on being kind to one another and, and focus on what unites us rather than what divides us all the time. And uh, that's the way I kind of live my life. So I work with both sides of the aisle. I am certainly uh, was raised Republican. I'm certainly much more of a conservative than, than not. But I have lots in common and uh, can also work with those who uh, disagree with me on certain issues and agree with me on others. So I, we focus on the things we agree on, and that's what I try to work on um, everywhere I go. Yeah. If you could get a, a package of Crackling Kamut in the hands of everybody uh, in Washington, D.C., you might just be able to solve some, uh, some problems. We'd, well, I think so. Why yeah. not? <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of uh, crackling kamut, that's a thing that a lot of people, I mean, we see it in the stores and it tastes delicious. Uh, what's the uh, 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 story behind uh, Kamut International and uh, how, how did you get going with that? Well, that was my first idea with uh, what to do with this ancient crane. I was at um, UC Davis just finishing up in 1977 and I was eating a package of corn nuts one day and it was taking a break from the lab. And, and on that, in those days, the corn nuts on the back of the package had a little description that said corn nuts made with a giant corn. And I thought, wow, I wonder if these guys would be interested in giant wheat. So I called them up and, <clears throat> and it happened. I knew the, the fellow that was in charge of the research. He had been um, a safe attorney that I was in at, at, at uh, Bozeman, AGR, but he was from... Oregon State, and we had met at a AGR convention, and and so we hit it right off. And I said, I've got some giant wheat for you. Would you be interested? And he said, Sure. And so I called up my dad, and I said, Dad, see if you can find some of that old King Tut wheat. And he rummaged around, and one of his friends in Fort Benton had a half a jar in his basement, about a pint jar. And he sent me a couple of tablespoons and had a few heads in the top of it. And I sent it down the corn nuts, those tablespoons, and they cooked it up, and they called me back and he said, wow, this is fantastic. He said, we'll take 10,000 pounds right now. And I said, oh, well, I, I, I don't really have 10,000 pounds, um, but if you give me a couple of years, I can I'll get everything you want. And so I called up my dad and I said, dad, plant all that in the garden right now. And luckily it was spring and he did. And we planted it um, a couple of years by hand and shelled it out by hand and started sending it to California to grow over the winter. So we had two crops a year. About three or four years later, we had 50 pounds and I called up the corn nuts people and my friend was gone. No one knew anything about this project. No one was interested in the project. And so the grain just kind of sat on a shelf until about 86, we went to our first health food show and we were promoting Montana flour and grain, another business we started in Fort Benton. And um, my dad and mom went with me and were trying to help me. We didn't know anything about food shows or what to do or <laughs> anything. And um, we never let that slow us down, but we just tried the best we could. and. My dad was showing everybody that walked by our booth this uh, jar of this ancient uh, giant wheat. And my cousin and I, um, Steve Lancaster, who lived in Southern California, and he and I had started Montana Flour and Grains together, and we were trying to sell stone ground whole wheat flour. My dad was showing everybody this little grain, and at the end, 
of three days after a thousand people walked by our stand, um, Steve and I had our pockets full of business cards and referrals. We were thrilled to death. And my dad had one business card and one referral, and it was the same guy, and he was thrilled to death. And because of that one person who was interested, we planted all 50 acres, and that was in 86. And about 30 years later, we were contracting with over 200 organic farmers in Montana, Alberta, and for over 100,000 acres. Wow. So that was amazing uh, growth we never expected and never dreamed about. But that's what happened. And um, uh, very early on, a friend of ours who couldn't eat wheat tried some pasta made with this grain. And not only could she eat it, she called us up the next day and she said, what is this stuff? She said, when I eat it, it makes me feel better. Wow. And he said, wow, well, we'll give you some more. And she says, you know, I have a, a sister who can't eat wheat. You think that she'd be interested uh, or she'd be interested but could we get some of this um, pasta for her too? And I said, sure, we'll send you a whole box. And after a couple of months, I found out that not only could this sister of hers eat it, uh, and she had lots of sensitivities to foods. And after she'd eaten it for several weeks, a month or so, she was less sensitive to other foods. So it was really doing something dramatic to her system. And when I heard that, I took my... Um, uh, I, I viewed this grain as something completely different. It wasn't just a novelty anymore. It was like a gift from uh, from the Lord. It was like something that was going to help people with their health. And so we took it very serious and started to try to figure out through research what was what was making people healthy. We couldn't really find anything that was obvious. So then after many years, we finally ended up with these um, clinical trials in Italy. And then we started unraveling um, some of the mysteries about this. And we still are, are doing that. And um, I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. But it, to me, opened up a whole new world of understanding of how important our food is and how it's changed and what that change has done to our health. All right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, who, who knew uh, way back then that uh, this could have such, a, such an impact? And it's, I mean, it sounds like uh, there's still a lot of uh, people that can really benefit from this. Well, there is, and getting back to your original question on the crack and Kamut, so <laughs> I, I uh, always thought it would be best for me to do what I could do best, which was farming and growing the grain and try to find manufacturing partners and let them do what they could do best, like um, manufacturing finished products. But after 40 years, or 30 years, I guess I should say, we couldn't find, we never found anyone that was interested in making um, the snack food that was my first idea with the Kamut in the, in, in the first place. And so we decided to make it ourselves. And that's where Big, how Big Sandy Organics came to be. And that's how Kraken Kamut came to be. So that's the long and the short of that story. Yeah. Well, Bob, I know that uh, that's just uh, one of several business ventures that you've had. You were also uh, the founder of the first wind farm in Montana. Tell us, uh, tell us about that, where it is, and uh, uh, the history behind that. Well, that's over at uh, Judith Gap. That was okay. the first... Uh, real commercial wind farm to be developed in Montana. It was 90 um, um, towers of um, about 135 megawatts. And um, I was in Germany. That story came from really a roundabout way. I was in Germany looking up family history and, and trying to follow some of my family roots. I ended up at a castle in, in, in um, Ostfriesland which is in northern Germany on the um, coast of the North Sea. And um, uh, this fellow that lived there was a distant, distant relative of mine. Um, I, we didn't connect until back in the 
like 1500s or something. So we were very distant. But anyway, he let me in his house and was showing me some of the family um, heirlooms and whatnot and how we connected. I could show him how we connected. And um, he had all these wind um, turbines on his uh, property that kind of supported his castle habit because there's very few castles in private hands in Germany now because they're so expensive and people can't afford to maintain them. But he was generating enough money with this wind power to uh, pay for his castles. And he and a friend had gone into business and were looking at sites in, um, had built several wind parks in Germany and in North Africa. Now we're looking further away in Chile and, and uh, oh, I don't know, we're all South Africa. And I said, gosh, you don't need to come to that, go that far. I said, why don't you come to Montana? I said, the last time the wind stopped blowing at our place, half the buildings fell down. And um, he got quite a chuckle out of that. And within six weeks, he was on my doorstep. And we, I toured, toured him around in Montana, went over the Judith Gap. And I said, you don't even have to test for wind, high wind here. The, the highway department put up a sign that says, warning, high wind. So <laughs> right. that's where we put up our test towers. And that's where he ended up building and designing the first um, wind uh, farm. And that, it took us five years. It wasn't a simple deal right. uh, by any means. We had to go through three different bidding processes. Um, uh, it could be a book a, a book of itself almost. But <laughs> sure. anyway, it was our goal to make sure Montana's first wind project was not the last one because of uh, not being done right. So we tried to do everything we could to make it successful. And, and it has been quite very, very successful. Yeah, I mean, as far as energy supply, wind may be the most plentiful in Montana. Yeah, and it's certainly free. <laughs> yeah, can't beat that. Well, Bob, uh, getting back to the organic farming and the, uh, I know you're, you're traveling all over the country and you're promoting organic uh, foods and farming. Uh, how, how do you see this movement going? You say there's still a lot of minds that can be changed, uh, but oh, yeah. are people becoming more open to it as you travel about? They are. I mean, when we started 30 years ago, I mean, it was almost a laughing stock of my neighbors. They called me the weed farmer. Of course, now that has a different connotation now. But um, in those days, it meant um, kosher and, um, and, and Russian thistle and those things for sure. But um, we survived and we learned as we went. We're still learning, actually. Um, but right now, after 30 years, we've gone from almost 0% in the grocery stores to nearly 6% of all the food in America is organic. And the current rate of growth, we, and it's the fastest growing segment of, of any of agriculture today, and at the current rate of growth in another 30 years, it's going to be 100%. So that's why I'm saying it really is the future. Um, what we need is um, research, however, to, to help a lot of farmers who would like to switch, don't know how to start or where to start and don't have um, resources and, and, and help to um, help them start. You know, with 6% of the food in America being organic, only 1%, however, of the USDA's research budget is focused on organic. That means 99% is focused on chemical agriculture, which, you know, it's going to be going away. Um, and uh, I think that if we had enough if the research at USDA would at least keep up with the um, market, I mean, research by definition should be leading the, the marketplace, not following, particularly this far behind. Um, I think it would provide for a lot more opportunities for farmers to have their questions answered, for farmers that have started organic not to become discouraged of problems they can't solve and go out of it um, and continue to um, produce organic food. You know, with 6% of the country buying organic and not that 
many farmers producing it. A lot of organic is coming in from outside the country and um, farmers overseas are getting premiums that could go right here in our pockets in Montana, in our own neighborhood. And that's what I would like to see happen. Well, Bob, I know that there's uh, so much more we could talk about, about organic farming and about all the things that you've been involved in. Uh, but uh, for people to, to follow you and some of the, the things you're doing and some of the research you're following, how, how do they do that? Is there a website? I know there's a Facebook page that they can just simply follow you on called Bob Quinn Organic Farmer. Uh, is there a website too? Well, we have a website for our Kamut International with okay. all of our research that's on that. You can see that in all kinds of detail and get a little more information about what that project is all about. But those are primarily it. I'm trying to, I'm working on uh, creating right now a, um, a research uh, organic, regenerative organic research center. I'd like to take uh, six or 700 acres out of the middle of my farm and create a research um, center just devoted for uh, studying the best methods of organic research for the high, for the Northern Great Plains. We don't have anything like that um, in existence. And I, that's one of my last uh, big projects that I'd like to, to uh, see um, fulfilled. All right. And people, of course, they can read your book, Grain by Grain, which uh, I'm sure is available yeah. at many bookstores yeah. or, or online. You can probably just look it up online and order it that way as well. That's true. That's true. All right. Yeah, and there's right. some films. I mean, if you, uh, Kitchen A just came out with um, um, a, a little production on our farm and, and about wheat called The um, uh, Possibilities of Wheat by KitchenAid. You can go on, um, on YouTube and find that if you like. We've got a movie about um, uh, our farm and our commute project also online on, on YouTube. So th there are some other ways that you can find out about some of the things that we've been doing. Well, Bob, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate you taking time and uh, look forward to, to following, uh, following you uh, as you I mean, do more groundbreaking things with organic food. Well, thanks, Tim. It's a real honor for me to be uh, your guest and uh, wish you well to your program and um, come visit us sometime. You've been listening to a conversation with Bob Quinn, who served on the first National Organic Standards Board. And in addition to Kamut International and Montana's first wind farm, Bob also opened the Oil Barn, a concept where safflower oil is grown and sold to university dining services for culinary use, while the waste oil fuels farm equipment. His book, Grain by Grain, can be found online and at many prominent booksellers. I invite you to subscribe to McGonigal's Chronicles wherever you get your podcasts and rate the podcast and leave a review. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. I'll be back soon with another guest with a Montana Connection. Until then, from McGonigal's Chronicles, making Montana connections, I'm Tim McGonigal.